some Hallmark movies. That's more like a rom-com. And this week I bring up the Lego movie, which is like a kid's movie. And if you were to plug my preferences into Netflix, they'd probably think I was a 12-year-old girl. That's just what it is. That's just the movies that I like. I really do think the Lego movie is a great movie. And it's great for multiple reasons. I think it casts a wide net to bring both children and adults into the story. It's humorous. It's entertaining. And the plot beautifully develops through each scene. Yet the end of the movie does something that no one was expecting. When you see the animated story end, the movie actually doesn't end. It doesn't cut to the credits. No, it actually zooms out to show a father and a son talking beside this massive Lego city, only to find out that the whole story was just a microcosm of their relationship. There was a real family story behind the whole plot, and you only realize that at the end of the movie. Yes, the story is great, but I think it gets even better when you find out that at the end that something so much more was happening. And this, in some ways, is the book of Ruth to a T. We see this glorious story of Naomi and Ruth search for a redeemer in Boaz. Yet when we conclude the story, when we come to the end, we realize that there was so much more going on in this book. You see, we know God is working behind the scenes. And this morning, we will see God conclude. We will see God show us exactly what he's been doing through the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So turn with me to Ruth 3 through 4. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to give us a quick context. I want to kind of take us back to last Sunday and help us remember what was happening. So Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth opens up with great tragedy as Naomi's husband dies, as her two sons dies, and she's left with just her Moabite daughter-in-law. And they come back to Bethlehem and she proclaims to everyone, I'm left empty. I went away full, but now I'm empty. The Almighty has afflicted me. But surprisingly, what we see is that the Lord is going to take her emptiness and start to fulfill her through her daughter-in-law, Ruth and Boaz. The Lord is doing incredible things, even if Naomi can't see it. A redeemer for her and Ruth is what she longs for more than anything, because a redeemer will bring protection and provision and ultimately will continue her inheritance. So she longs for a redeemer, right? But in chapter two, we end with the final words, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That's Ruth. You see, Boaz could be the redeemer that Naomi wants, yet he obviously hasn't made the move yet because Ruth is still living with her mother-in-law. And so this brings us to chapter 3 this morning where we'll see Naomi begin to concoct a seemingly very unorthodox plan that in her eyes will help speed up this process, this one last big hope for Ruth. All right, so I have two points this morning that, very similar to last week, really capture two chapters that we'll be in, chapter 3 and 4. So in chapter 3, for all the note takers out there, we will see a redeemer requested. 
So chapter three, we will see a redeemer requested. And in chapter four, we will see a redeemer received. A redeemer requested, a redeemer received. And so similar to last week, I'm not going to read the whole thing to us, all, three, all two chapters in one sitting. But as I work through it, I'll be reading most of it. But we are going to read Ruth 3, 5 through 13. So if you can, stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Ruth 3, 5 through 13. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I'm a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. You may be seated. So this brings us to our very first point this morning, a redeemer requested. So let's pick it up in verse 1 with Naomi's ingenious plan. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now isn't Boaz our relative? Have you been working with his female servants? At least for me on this initial reading, I couldn't help but think, is Naomi trying to, first, to force her plan apart from the Lord? Does she want a redeemer that badly? Hasn't she seen that God has provided for her and he will continue to provide? But upon further reading and studying, I just don't think these are the questions that we should be asking. You see, the text reads, shouldn't I find rest for you? Purpose statements so that you will be taken care of. This was Naomi's prayer for Ruth when she stopped her and Orpah on the way to Judah, that she would find rest in the house of a husband. Naomi's purpose for her plot is her daughter-in-law's well-being. She isn't thinking about herself. No, she's starting to display this hesed kindness that she has so evidently seen in Naomi, I mean, I'm sorry, in Ruth and Boaz. All right, so what's the plan? What all centers on Boaz, the man who is one of the family's redeemers, a man that can provide protection, provision, and even progeny for their family. You can just picture Naomi saying something to the effect of, 
hey, Ruth, what about that Boaz guy? He's a real looker, isn't he? He's marriage material. You've been working with him. Why don't you go and talk to him? It's like some girls in here might be thinking, gosh, I had that same conversation with my mother-in-law this week, or my mother this week. So, yeah, classic moms. Um, All right, so it all centers around Boaz, who Naomi says, this evening will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Naomi urges Ruth to approach Boaz at a place where where she knows that he will be in a good mood. This is the place where grain was cut, and in this place it was thrown up in the air, and it was thrown up in the air at night because that's when the breeze would come. And so when it was thrown up at night, the chaff would be blown away and the grain would fall on the floor. And why would Boaz be in a good mood? Because he's sitting around everything that God had provided in the last six months. He's seeing the work that he's put forth, and this is what the Lord has done. And so he would be sleeping there because he would be protecting his grain from wild animals and thieves. And so Naomi goes in verse 3 to give Ruth some directions about what she should do prior to arriving and what she should do when she arrives on the scene. Naomi, she's definitely scheming here. Look what she says. In verse, in, in step one and two, she says this, take a bath and put on perfume. It's like, don't smell like the wild animals that he's protecting his grain from. You know, you got to smell good. So do those two things. Step three, Wear your best clothes. Now we got to stop and think here. She might be telling her to just put on a nice dress, but that doesn't really make sense when you think about she's going to Boaz in the pitch black dark. The more I've studied and the more I've thought about it, I think she is advising Ruth to end her period of mourning. That very well may be the reason why Boaz has not approached her in the first place. Her clothes have, might have signaled, I'm still mourning the loss of my husband. And so Naomi here might be just giving her a little push to say, Ruth, you just got to get on with your life. All right, so she advises her, continuing in verse 3, when you get there, don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. I mean, it's simple. It's like, don't approach him when he's hangry. It's like, that's not wise at all. Let him get some good food, let him get some good drink in him, and then approach him. Secondly, this is literally, this is my favorite piece of advice in verse 4. When he lies down, notice where he's lying. (laughs) I've heard horror stories of like couples out in public and like the guy goes to like thinking that's his wife to hug her from behind and that is not his wife. And so he's hugging some random girl from behind. This is what Naomi's saying. It's like, don't let that happen to you. Don't uncover this random man's feet that is not Boaz. Make sure you know that he's there. Obviously, this is a strange request when we think about uncovering feet. But hear me out. I don't think we should read too much into it. The author over and over extols Ruth and Naomi for their character. This certainly was odd, but it was not immoral. 
It was probably just to get his attention. The cold air on his feet works kind of like an alarm clock. They both wake you up furiously. So that was really pretty much what she was signaling right there to wake him up. And we'll see in verse 9, too, that it probably acted as a proposal as well. So in summary, Naomi's plan is both countercultural and a massive gamble. I think the countercultural part is pretty obvious. It was like during those times, like it is today, it's like women do not ask out men for the most part. It's like that just doesn't happen. Yet the gamble aspect, I think, is not as obvious to us. Think about this with me, because I think it really sets the scene for Ruth's arrival on the threshing floor in verse 6. The potential for disaster is so high. Although Naomi's plan is comprehensive, there's a lot that could go wrong. Boaz could easily respond in a negative way. He could perceive Ruth's gesture as a sexual one, demanding her to leave. He could just outright reject her proposal. Or he could wake up and just shoo her away because he was just woken up in the middle of the night. Whatever happened, though, I think both Ruth and Naomi knew that Yahweh was in control and he was working out everything for their good. That's why I'm not convinced that Naomi is just flippantly acting apart from the Lord. Hear me out. I'm certainly not advocating women in here to walk away thinking, if he won't propose, I will. I'm not saying that at all. Don't hear me say that. But I do think there is an application for us to make choices. Listen, making choices is not antithetical to God's good plan in our lives, for trusting God's good plan. Kevin DeYoung helpfully says this. I thought this was a great quote. He said, God expects and encourages us to make choices confident that he has already determined how to fit our choices in his sovereign will. I think this confidence in how God has already determined to fit our choices in his sovereign will is a key truth that Naomi and Ruth understood that I think Christians, especially millennials, really struggle with. And as we struggle with it, it leads us into indecision and passivity. Naomi was not calling Ruth to sin. She was calling her to act, certainly act in an odd manner, but nonetheless make a decision and trust God's good providence. It might be well for us to follow in her footsteps. All right, so let's pick it back up in verse 8 where we see Ruth follow Naomi's instructions except with one minor part. Verse 8 starts out, at midnight Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I'm Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wings, for you are a family redeemer. Naomi's plan is happening, happening accordingly until the moment that Boaz wakes up. You see, Ruth was instructed to wait until Boaz's instruction. Nevertheless, she comes right through the front door to state her intentions, a proposal. Do what you're qualified to do. Take me under your wings. I want to pause and let us not forget who is talking to who. 
Ruth the foreigner, a Moabite, a widow, a servant, uninvited, and making demands of her boss to marry her. I mean, we got to stop here and think. It's like, how is this happening? Why is she doing this? Where is she getting this courage? Well, in departing from Naomi's script, we see the reason why she's taking this seemingly hopeless gamble. Her aim was to benefit Naomi, providing her with an heir to continue, to continue Elimelech's name and inheritance. And Boaz realizes this unbelievable kindness cloaked in boldness when he responds in verse 10. That really breaks all the tension that you're feeling in the story. He says this, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Or poor. Boaz starts off by saying, may the Lord bless you. He's saying that, and I want us to listen to this and maybe even take a note right here, that Ruth's obedience actually deserves a reward. We might sit here and think, how oh, we kind of cringe thinking about obedience deserves a reward. But Boaz really is saying that, his, that her hesed kindness to her mother-in-law is shown in such a magnificent way. He's asking that the Lord might reward her or repay her for her actions. Thomas Schreiner was really helpful in talking about this, especially this part when he says this. He says, Ruth did not earn or merit a reward. No, because she, no, because she trusted in Yahweh, she took refuge under his wings. All those who trust in Yahweh are rewarded for looking to him as their God and king. This is a great theme in the book of Ruth. Reward or blessing comes from trusting Yahweh, and that trust is revealed through actions like this one, this hesed kindness that she is showing. We see this in verse 12 of chapter 2 when Boaz really says the same thing to Ruth. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And we saw that the Lord had rewarded her with protection and provision. Yet Boaz saying this again has to call us to think that greater wages might just be coming her way. Naomi's hope of a child might still be in the picture. All right. I want us to be careful that we don't walk away thinking that Ruth's motivation was her reward. Also don't want us to walk away thinking that our reward for trusting the Lord is always earthly things like a husband, a wife, or a family. Ruth totally committed herself to Yahweh, taking refuge under his wings, and was rewarded with protection, provision, and ultimately an offspring. But listen, her end was God, right? That's who she was trusting. Her end was God, and God rewarded her. What God gave Ruth is descriptive, though. It isn't promised to us. What is promised to us is that we would get more and more of God, and we can lay up earthly treasures in heaven. Yet I wonder, and I, I pray that you hear this humbly, I wonder if there are single ladies and single men in the room that desire to get married, yet that good desire over time might, might look more like God, why haven't you provided? Look what I'm doing for you. 
it's like that um, the motivation has started to change from a wholehearted trust in God to now it's like this works-based reward system. I do want you to hear me saying desiring a husband and desiring a wife is a great thing, yet if that's the means by which we're serving God, and it could be subtle, we might be subconsciously doing this, well then those desires have moved to a very dangerous place, and we should repent. Brothers and sisters, I'm just encouraging you to check your heart. Why are you serving the Lord? Is your in God or is your end earthly blessings? All right, so Boaz continues in verse 10 saying that Ruth has shown even more kindness than before. Boaz implies that Ruth's devotion here is even more impressive than her initial devotion to Naomi in chapter 1. Why is that? Well, he states it because she could have easily married for passion which would have been younger men, or she could have easily married for greed by hitching her wagon to a rich man. It's kind of funny, he's like telling, he's like, you're a real catch, and everyone knows it. Nevertheless, we see Ruth reject passion and greed to choose family loyalty instead. She's not thinking about her own interests, but she's thinking about the interest of others, specifically Naomi. I think Philippians 2 should be ringing in our ears at this point in the story. We see someone not looking out on their own interests, but sticking their neck out for someone else. Ruth's hesed kindness is clearly pointing forward to the hesed kindness of Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of humanity. Kelsey and I, we've been reading Henry, this storybook Bible, almost every night. And he always asks, every time I open the book, it never fails. He says, Dada, turn it to the purple robe. And so every time I turn it to where Jesus wears the purple robe. But I tell him, I say, son, Jesus is wearing this purple robe because people are mocking him. Jesus is wearing this robe because he's saying that he's the king of the Jews and they're making fun of him. But I tell Henry, I tell Henry that Jesus came to die for those very people that are doing these things. Look at the Hesed kindness of Jesus Christ. Look at Ruth, who's not thinking about herself, but thinking about Naomi. And I pray that we as NBC, we would care for one another, that we would look not only to our own interests, but we would stick our neck out for one another, that we would think about one another, that we would be so consumed with one another. I pray that that would be the disposition of our lives. All right, so Boaz continues his dialogue with Ruth when he says in verse 11, he says, now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my hometown know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz gives the reason why he accepts Ruth's proposal, because she is a noble woman, and everyone knows it. I think we can point to two unbelievable things in this text. Number one, he said yes. That's awesome. There's going to be a wedding. All right. <laughs> That's kind of obvious, but I wanted to point it out. Secondly, 
Ruth the Moabite has been in Bethlehem for just a couple of weeks, yet Boaz can confidently say that everyone knows she's a woman of noble character. Listen, she didn't get that reputation by hanging around important people or people in high society. No, the lowly, humble, Moabite woman showed Hasid kindness and loyalty to her family, and everyone took notice and praised her. I pray that, again, we as NBC would have this similar reputation in our homes, workplace, neighborhoods, and even in Memphis. All right, so... Continuing the story, remember last week I talked about Hallmark movies and how every Hallmark movie has a type of complication that we never saw coming? Well, verse 12 right here introduces this type of complication. Boaz prefaces his yes with the, all right, but hold up, I have something to tell you. He says in verse 12, yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. We see the drama right here build and build and build. As you see that Boaz... He's not actually the closest one to Naomi's family. It's like there's a pecking order, and there's one man that's ahead of him. Yet he tells tells Ruth, he says, I promise you that I will do everything that I can do if I have the opportunity. And so he tells her then to lie down until morning. Yet thinking about the story right here, I'm sure that they probably didn't get a ton of sleep with this new wrinkle and especially Ruth, as Boaz's feet was her pillow. I know people like firm, but that might be a little too firm. <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. Um, all right, and so we, see that Bo- so we see that Boaz sends Ruth back with some, um, with some grain for her mother-in-law, and we finish the chapter like we finished chapter two with really some chit-chat, some girl talk between Ruth and Naomi. And so at the end of chapter 3, we're, we hear Ruth's last words in the account. Sadly, she doesn't make an appearance in chapter 4. Ruth says in verse 17, He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. This gift was more than just provision for their family. It was actually a down payment for their marriage. And I want you to pay close attention here. Naomi, the bitter, empty woman in chapter 1 who came to Bethlehem begrudgingly with her Moabite daughter-in-law is hearing about God's provision through Ruth right before her very eyes. She could have never fathomed at the beginning of the story that Ruth would be the one by which God uses to bring protection, provision, and ultimately a child. Yet it was through Ruth's faithfulness that God uses her in a mighty way. And I just want to point this out quickly as Ruth exits the account. The world perceived her as nothing, yet through her faithfulness, God used her mightily for his glory. And you might even say to yourself, like you might not verbalize this, but you might think, man, it's like I don't have a speaking gift like Joshua, or I can't evangelize like 
like Miss Nancy. Or maybe you're saying, like, I'm not as outgoing as Glorimar. And because your thought process is this, you do not think God can use you. But look at Ruth's example. I think this proves that God delights to use that those that are faithful. I praise God for the gifts that I just said, but just because you don't have those gifts does not mean that God cannot use you. The gifts are great, but I think more is the godliness. The gifts don't mean anything apart from godliness. Jackie Hill Perry once tweeted, and I love this, let's not confuse giftedness for godliness. Ruth's godliness was a means by which the Lord brought Naomi's fullness, and it will be a means by which the Lord uses you. Stay faithful. Let's pursue godliness. All right, so Ruth requested a redeemer, and Boaz gladly accepted, yet we learn about a man who is closer to Naomi's family, a man that has the right to redeem ahead of Boaz. Naomi ends chapter 3 with these words, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. Boaz is on a mission, yet the big question left hanging in the air How will this end? And that brings us to our last point this morning and our last chapter in the book of Ruth. And our last point, too, a redeemer received. If you think we saw drama in the last chapter, chapter 4 will have us pacing around like a good thriller movie. This scene begins with Boaz going to the city gate, a place where citizens of the town would gather to conduct business. I love this scene. Boaz comes to the gate. He sits down communicating to all that he means business, a determined man driven by desire and duty on a mission to redeem. I don't want to get ahead of the curve here, but Boaz reminds me so much of Jesus in Mark 10 that Joshua just preached on a couple weeks ago. Remember Jesus, that he's walking towards Jerusalem ahead of his apostles and his followers as they lag behind in fear. Why are they afraid? Because they knew what Jesus knew. Jerusalem equals death. Yet Jesus was a determined man, for he was on a mission to redeem. And we see this as he voluntarily, as he courageously heads towards Jerusalem, as everyone is behind him. Unlike Jesus, Boaz isn't going to have to die, though. That is a big spoiler alert here. Yet, there will be some sacrifice if he's going to be the one who will redeem. So he's at the city gate, and lo and behold, this unnamed redeemer comes by. And this is what Boaz says. We'll pick it up in verse 2. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. We have a boardroom meeting type scenario going on with Boaz, this unnamed redeemer, and 10 of the town elders to witness this deal that's about to go down. When we look at verse 2, we have our translation of Boaz saying that Naomi is selling the portion of the field. 
yet it seems to be, at least in my understanding, a bit misleading. According to the Mosaic law, the inheritance that the family was given by God after they crossed the Jordan was supposed to stay in their family. The land was to remain in the family according to Leviticus 25. This is why Boaz says, our brother, they're a part of the family, and that inheritance will be, um, is supposed to be theirs. The, mis- the misleading part about this translation is that Naomi, being a widow, did not have the authority to sell the land. This is why she needs a redeemer, because the loss of a husband meant the loss of support. So if Naomi, if she wasn't selling the land, then what was she doing? Well, it seems that when they left Moab, the land fell into someone else's hands. Now, being her land, she would be able to reclaim it if she had the money, but she didn't. She didn't have any support. She had no provision and no protection coming to Bethlehem. Now, Boaz, he makes this argument that the Redeemer must go purchase back the land for whoever was using it at the time. And I want to say this also, it's like, I think we're all observant and we catch this, but but Boaz realizes that in some ways, Ruth is tied to this land as well, because Ruth's desire is for Naomi's inheritance to come back to the family. So Boaz grasped that gaining the right to the land was gaining the right to Ruth's hand in marriage. And so Boaz, in verse 4, lays everything out for the man. He's upfront, honest, and articulate. And we hear, at the end of verse 4, the words, I want to redeem it. Yeah, it's like we're sitting there. This, un, this unnamed redeemer, he's going to redeem it? This is kind of like the court scene in Airbud when Buddy, the owner, and Jake are standing across from each other. Unbelievable movie reference right here, I know. But they're standing across from each other, and Buddy starts ahead towards the clown, right? His owner. And everybody's thinking, no, he cannot do that. Go with him? No. And this is kind of how we feel right now. Naomi and Ruth, it's not right that they go with this unnamed redeemer. Well, Boaz, he has one more trick up his sleeve. It's his final bullet in the chamber. He says in verse 5, On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on the property. Boaz explains to this man that in buying the piece of the property, he will ultimately end up in the hands of Ruth's offspring, who you must marry. The man quickly changes his mind and and exclaims in verse 6, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Why does he say ruin his own inheritance? It seems kind of odd. Why in getting this land would he then ruin his inheritance? Well, it seems like this man's end is his own well-being. He doesn't want to purchase a piece of land if, in fact, it will ultimately just end up in the hands of Naomi's family. The deal sounded sweet until there was some sacrifice involved for this unnamed redeemer. Nevertheless, with this new clause, he opts out of the deal by saying, take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. 
This is like the scene when Buddy tears the newspaper open and runs to Jake, right? There is resolution. Naomi and Ruth are with who they belong to, and that is Boaz. The business has come to a close. The deal is done. And we read in verses 7 through 8 about the custom of the time to ratify the deal. There was no paperwork involved, per se, but a sandal was given from one party to the other, legally binding the transaction. The unnamed redeemer handed over his Jerusalem cruisers to Boaz, and the deal was done. Boaz was Naomi's redeemer, and Ruth had finally found what Naomi so desired, rest in the house of a husband. Before Boaz left the gate, the elders of the city pronounced a type of blessing on him and Ruth in verses 11 through 12. And we see this phrase, may the Lord make and may your house become. And when we hear this, it might immediately say, man, that sounds a lot like Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its labors build in vain. The elders of the town knew that Boaz's desire was to perpetuate Elimelech's name on the property. Yet skillfully, they remind Boaz and everyone seated around that it was only by the sovereign hand of God that these things would come about. And the Lord, he surely brings it about. When we read in verse 13, the author says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. We're supposed to think immediately about chapter 1. Remember, Ruth had been married to Malin for 10 years, and they couldn't conceive a child. The author wants us to marvel at God who graciously opens the womb to give Ruth a child. He not only gives them a child, but even more through this child, Naomi's life has been restored. Her inheritance is not lost. I want us to look at verse 16 because we see this sweet picture at the end of the book. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. A redeemer has been received. The bitterness and emptiness that plagued her at the beginning of the book has been wiped away. She now sits full because of how God restored her life through Boaz and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. I mean, we gotta say, like we gotta sit here at the end and feel this and think, what an incredible turn of events. Yet, the story does not really end there because we see this genealogy in verse 17 and one and a even more in-depth genealogy in verses 18 through 22. And this is where we're gonna land the plane this morning. You might have picked up on this, but this story, as I said in the introduction, acts as a microcosm to Israel and ultimately the whole world. We don't really know this at first, but the author throughout the whole book slowly unveils this until he comes right out of the gate at the very end with this genealogy. He's saying right here, something so much larger is going on. It's very similar, like I said, to the end of the Lego movie. The story of Ruth acts as a microcosm that reveals God's working behind the scenes, demonstrating that he has not abandoned his people. 
Remember, the story takes place during the judges. As I said, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel needed a king after God's own heart to lead them into righteousness. And in this story, we find that God is doing that very thing. Look with me at the end of verse 17. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This was no ordinary child, for this child born to Ruth was ultimately a part of the royal line of David. God had not abandoned his people. No, he was working behind the scenes to provide a king that they did not even ask for, that they did not even know they needed, yet God knew they needed, and he was doing things that Israel did not even know. Yet we know that King David did not solve Israel's problem of lacking perfect righteousness and complete forgiveness. Although he did lead them into righteousness, David was a sinful man. And ultimately, he could not redeem Israel. A greater David had to come to redeem God's people. And the book of Ruth here again has something so much, going, so much more going on than just the redemption of Naomi and Ruth and even God preparing a great king for Israel. This story foreshadows how God will provide for the whole world. Yes, the greater David will come through Ruth's line. And we see that in Matthew 1 as Ruth and Boaz is named in the genealogy. We all know that. But I think maybe even more, he comes through this line and the book of Ruth shows how he will provide for the world. How does he do that? Well... He's going to bring his people out of idolatry. He's going to bring his people into fullness. He's going to bring where there's emptiness. He's going to bring restoration, and he's going to restore his people. He's going to ultimately redeem them. Yet the book of Ruth teaches us that apart from a redeemer, there is no restoration, there is no fullness, and there is no reward. A redeemer had to come to do what Naomi couldn't do. A redeemer had to come to purchase his people. And we got to say, I think this is obvious, is this not pointing to the one who came to purchase his people? Is this not pointing to Jesus Christ? Is this story tucked in our Old Testament not pointing us to what God will do for his people? Listen to Titus 2.14 where Paul says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. How did Jesus redeem us? The book of Ruth was pointing to it. He came to cleanse his people by giving himself up for us. That's the great gospel that Ruth points to, that Jesus showed, as I said, perfect Hesed kindness in the way that he laid down his life by dying on a cross, that those who look to him might repent and believe and obtain righteousness, complete forgiveness of sins. This is what the book of Ruth points us to. 
And NBC, as we're walking away from this glorious book, I pray that we remember that it is pointing us to Jesus, our Redeemer. I pray that we have seen these patterns of God as he's working behind the scenes, for he has not abandoned his people, and he will not. And I pray that this elicits great trust, that we would walk away from this book trusting God, as I even said last week, all the more. Let's pray.